Trying to find my way through the chaos of life But it feels like I'm drowning in stress and strife Searching for answers, a glimmer of hope In this world of confusion, I'm learning to cope Sound of sanity, a beacon of light Guiding me through the darkest of nights With wisdom and grace and a message of peace I find my way back to a state of release There's a voice in the distance calling my name With a message of comfort and a way to change I listen closely and I start to see A path to a better, a more peaceful me Sound of sanity, a beacon of light Guiding me through the darkest of nights With wisdom and grace and a message of peace I find my way back to a state of release With each episode, I grow stronger With each lesson, I last longer In the sound of sanity, I find my way To a brighter tomorrow and a brand new day Multiple people asked that our intro be written by chat GPD, and so there it have, is. You have your wish. Awesome. You have your <laughs> That's wish. That's pretty great. If you want us to start doing that every week, we can, <laughs> but we won't because <laughs> you don't. <laughs> That's pretty amazing. So join me on this journey and let's find our way. Together we'll discover a brighter, saner day with the sound of sanity and a voice of reason. We'll find peace and clarity in this world of treason. You're like, <laughs> <laughs> maybe a robot wrote that last part. I don't know. Welcome to Sound of Sanity. This is the podcast where we bring biblical wisdom to an insane world. We're all about applied theology, the Bible, wisdom. We're a wisdom podcast. I think that's true. And we are, well, we are Nathan Alberson, your humble and obedient host. We are Ben Solzer. Your preacher, who's a teacher we of sanity. Are ben Solzer. We are Ben. We are become we are. Ben Solzer. <laughs> we are. That was fun. That was fun. Hello, Jake. Hey. This is Sound of Sanity. This is a podcast where we talk about biblical sanity. And this is our crowdsourced episode, another one of our crowdsourced, fan-sourced episodes. This one called February in 1984, where we talk about things from the news, about the culture, about what's going on in the world at large. And we talk about whatever our fans on Discord Tell us to talk about. We have a channel on Discord, which you can get to by going to patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity after you've rated and reviewed and subscribed to the podcast. Of course, you go there, patreon.com forward slash sound of sanity. You sign up, you get insta access to our Discord, you get to talk to a great community of people, and you get to tell us what you want us to podcast about. And so people have done that, and we are going to now talk about those things and this is we call it february in 1984 because it's a bunch of dystopian garbage that happened during the month of february or at least was reported to us during the month or no no, no, no. sorry during the month False. of january yeah see this is i have my doubts about the goodness of our titling system but i have never come up with a better one so maybe what i should have is my doubts about my own intelligent ability to interact with said system and it's more my fault than the systems. But in any case, this is stuff that people dropped in there during January. But now it's February, so we're talking about it. So in any case, here we go into February 1984. What is the first article that 
our patrons want us to talk about? Daily Mail article that says title the title is It's the most rewarding work we've ever done. Mm. Canadian doctor who's euthanized 400 people proudly shares how she's helped kill men deemed incapable of choosing assisted suicide. As another physician says, he's helped 300 die. Right. There's a doctor in there, that article that euthanized 400 people and a doctor that euthanized 300 and they're both talking about how, how rewarding the work is and the, the, the other thing that's, she, she killed a man deemed incapable of choosing assisted suicide. Right. Mm. So there was some criteria where a board determined that if this man had his, capa- his capacity, he would choose euthanasia and therefore let's just kill him. Pretty evil stuff. <sighs> I liked it back when assisted suicide was called homicide. I thought that was a good name for it. Man. Like Jeffrey Dahmer, what a great assistant suicide guy. Well, you also have Dr. Dr. Kevorkian. Kevorkian Kevorkian is an amazing name. It is an amazing bad guy. Or a murderer. (laughs) (laughs) No, no, Ben, he was an assistant suicider. I I just, I had forgotten that that it has this whole acronym, (laughs) MADE. Medical Assistance and Dying. M-A-I-D, I just forgot yeah. that. That's, Medical that's Assistance amazing. and Dying. It's really amazing. Be like if I burn. It is straight Orwellian. 1984. Yeah, it is so incredibly Orwellian. Uh, it's that hideous strength. It's all of those things. Hey, did you guys hear about the assistant downsizing I did for Jake? I burned down his house. <laughs> I'm an assistant downsizer now. It's my new job. That's amazing. Uh, I, the board decided that Jake needed to be downsized, so we set his house on fire. He was incapable of making that decision <laughs> Somehow, he was just, <laughs> but he was, we could make it. We could make him for well, it. Well, Jake needs to reduce his carbon footprint. Right, it's going to be rewarding work for us to reduce Jake's <laughs> carbon footprint <laughs> <laughs> by turning Some of the most rewarding work we've ever done. All his stuff into carbon. Oh uh, my yeah. goodness! Assisted suicide. What a bunch of Orwellian double speak. So evil. Garbage. Uh, no, I, I really want to go through and write a book about Jack the Ripper and like Jeffrey Dahmer and all those guys and be like, they were great at assistance. <laughs> like, I think these young ladies need to have some assistant suicide. Is there anything else you want to say about that? No, there's nothing else to say. It's demonic. What else can you say? It's demonic. It's evil. Like and evil. it's, it's like, hilarious how much Canada fits the stereotype of not the dystopian movies where it's like a big screen with an evil guy talking as you walk through an urban sort of hellhole, like you know, Blade Runner type stuff, but but more like the Logan's Run style. Everyone's happy. Everybody just talks like this, eh? And we're so happy to be here and cheerful and stuff, but they're they're cheerfully doing horrible things. It's it's more that style of dystopia. And being exterminated, being forcibly like euthanized. Well, yeah, it's uh, Logan's Run. Yeah, it's, it's which is not a movie to recommend. I guess. What is it? Logan's Run. Logan's Run. Yeah. Well, it's weird how those dopey things from the seventies now feel prophetic. Logan's Run, Soylent Green. <laughs> it just came up in my Instagram feed yesterday an old Wired article from twenty seventeen about cannibalism and what's wrong with it. Like what? Like what's the big deal? Right. Like the author was like. Asking the question, what's the big deal? The article was, let me let me just grab that real quick because it's not in our Discord, but huh. it's just worth mentioning that that's a 
thing that is real. Sure. I think I just found it. What's well? There's there's a couple. what's wrong? What's wrong with eating people from Wired UK? Then there's one called the Case for Cannibalism. I don't know if that's true. Anyway, well, it's probably worth talking about that more generally for a second because cannibalism has really hit the zeitgeist lately. There's been four or five big cannibal movies and cannibal. Anytime love stories. that sort of thing happens, it's like you have to know. Whether it's intentional or not, and we talk about this all the time, and generally fall on the side of it's not intentional. It's not like some part of like some evil cabal in Hollywood is, but it is in the air, right? And it may be demonically intentional. It's part of a program that's being run, right? Well, and even if you wanted to take take a step back, which I don't think you necessarily should, but if you wanted to say we're not actually going to eat each other, if you wanted to say that, then what you would have to say is we are obsessed with the idea of eating each other, with the idea of devouring each other on some level. And we want to process the fact that we all feel like we are devouring or, or being devoured. And this is how we see our lives, especially if we're angsty teenagers that buy movie tickets and we're desensitized enough that vampire dramas don't do it, do it for us anymore. About 20 years ago, you had, well, maybe it is 20 years ago. Now you had true blood. You had, 90s and early 80s was a big time for vampires. And then this used to go in cycles. In the 80s, you had Anne Rice, and that was just homoerotic kind of, that was about AIDS and gay stuff, basically. And then it came back around in the late 90s and early 80s, and you had all this vampire stuff. And I don't know that we're going to get another vampire cycle because vampires are just too silly. They wear capes. They sleep in coffins. It's not visceral enough to but actually the, the help The cycle us. usually is or at least as I understood, it was always vampire, zombie, vampire, zombie, vampire, zombie. Right, and we're kind and zombies of... zombies are... Zombies are coming back. HBO just launched a big new zombie show that is their new thing, the new HBO show right. that's taken the world by storm. Yeah, I mean, zombies have kind of been a perennial. They've never really gone away since The Walking Dead and all that stuff. You, you had your big 70s, George Romero, Night of the Living Dead kind of stuff hit, and then it went away for a while. But the the, the newer wave of zombies... It's been a little bit more steady stream. It's been a little bit more steady, but also it's had its peaks and valleys, and we're we're headed into a peak right now. But vampire to me the ultimate monster is a vampire it's a much more interesting monster than a zombie because a vampire is somebody that you meet every day you meet predators people Mm -hmm. with malicious intent who have Mm -hmm. been who have been corrupted by other people and wish to corrupt you and that could be a sexual abuser but it could also just be a a spiritual abuser or you know there's all kinds of vampires in the world be a little more hard-pressed to say exactly who the zombies are i mean i guess the, the democrats you know whatever but there's a reason we love zombies. And it's we a t- mass hysteria consumption. Right. Twitter. Uh, zo- yeah. Sure. And, and also sort of bodily stuff that we're scared of, AIDS, things like that. Of course, zombieism touches on that. Zombieism touches on our desire to retreat into a bunker and get away from the world and treat everyone else as the enemy and just shoot them in the head because they've been compromised somehow in a way that makes them inhuman. So there's a lot we can talk about with zombies, but the fact is if I meet somebody at the grocery store, I'm not thinking usually that guy's a zombie, whereas you, you, see, you, you walk past vampires every day and mm-hmm. you've been hurt by vampires probably. Every time you log on to social media, you might think you're swarmed by them. You're swarmed by zombies. You're swarmed by zombies, yeah. And then you're like, ooh, that guy's a vampire. 
So I think vamp I think vampirism is one of the most potent metaphors, but unfortunately it's just been so uh, sucked of blood by the culture that it's hard for us to to do it well these days in a way that really feels visceral and probably somebody will crack the code and then we'll have another vampire cycle. But I think cannibals are just that that's what it is. I think it's just the vampire cycle. Well, that's where the zombies and the and the, the vampires meet, right? Yeah. Is like, because I, I, I remember reading the Walking Dead comic graphic novel series. Sure. For a while. <laughs> until I was done. Because it got, it, I remember, it was fun. It was fun for a while. And then it was just like, okay, now we're going into serial killing and sexual depravity, even more sexual depravity. Right. And it was just like, wait a minute. He's never going to stop. There's no hero. That's not his interest. Right. He's just going to push, 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 push until all the people are zombies. And Maybe that's an obvious thing to say if you've seen a zombie movie. That's like the whole point, but still, right? It's like then the then the the good guy's going to become a predator too. Can't stop it. Mm-hmm. Like he'll he'll be the one. Yeah. Yeah. Well, I just feel like it's the vul- it's almost I would almost say it's the vulgarization of our culture. It's the crassness of our culture. It's the in your face wickedness of our culture. You know, it's the same thing with abortion. You used to have to say we want abortion to be safe, legal, and rare. More and more people are saying. We know it kills babies. And, and we just want to kill the babies. And, and so it's like cannibalism strips away one layer of metaphor from vampirism. Vampirism, it's like we all know what a vampire is. We all know it's sexual. We all know these things. But there's something kind of, there is a little bit of a modesty veil, actually. That's actually why I think it's a potent metaphor that that can be good when used well, because it actually does draw a little bit of a modesty veil around these things so that you can talk about them. That's actually in a weird way, old school horror was a way of drawing a modesty veil around certain things, even though in another sense, it's shoving them in our faces, shoving them in our noses. But cannibalism is so much more just like, hey, you realize you're eating somebody. You're not like coming in in the night and drinking their blood and leaning over them with a cape. You're just ripping their- No theatrics here. No theatrics here. Actually, what you're what you desire to do is to consume the people that you love, or the people that you're married to, or the people that you're are your children. You just you just want to eat them, and we're we're not even gonna pretend like that's not a thing that we we're all into. And that's the that's the thing about the, actually this Wired article is it, it is literally talking about your loved ones, right? Like, so part of the what the article talks about is like lab grown bits of your loved ones or celebrities. So like synthesize cannibalism as a, as a part of this. So how do I, like if I fetishize the idea of eating and consuming my loved ones or a particular celebrity crush or obsession, can I literally do a synthesized version of that? Like, it's just like that level of like Brad Pitt gives his DNA to some lab and then they sell, and then they grow Brad Pitt Brad steaks. Pitt steaks. I, I yeah. Can't even, I that's, mean, yeah. Yeah, I, exactly. I, that's exactly the kind of thing that they're talking about. I don't know. And so it's, it's like in vitro meat, but you would just be able to. Yeah. Which <laughs> is, which is obviously totally sick. Yeah. And it goes, it goes actually along with something else that I, man, yeah. But it just hit me on. Oh, I bet I know what you're going to say. On Twitter, too. The, People uh, that give themselves to be baby incubators after they're dead or after they're yeah, brain dead. Yeah. It seems 
this whole like this is from like a scholarly article a bioethics journal or something like yeah and here's a direct quote it seems plausible that some people would be prepared to consider donating their whole bodies for gestational purposes just as some people donate parts of their bodies for organ donation we already know that pregnancies can be successfully carried to term in brain dead women there's no obvious medical reason why initiating such pregnancies would not be possible in this paper dot 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 this is not parody this is talking about using the bodies of the dead or the bodies of the brain dead to incubate children in our sci-fi horror drama. Right. Well, the horror movies are true. I mean, our society just wants to open the portal to hell and say, you know that you want to look inside. Mm -hmm. Like, you want to go down there. Just come on. Like, stop pretending that you don't. Yeah, I think that's true. I also think it's true that we are, we have a society that's built on the bodies of little ones and we have this collective guilt that we have to deal with and you have to lean into it. At yeah. We've, point. we've got so much blood guilt accumulated at this point that the only way to deal with it is, is not just to ignore it, but to say, actually it's great. Actually it's good. Actually it's, this is something that is lovely. And, and so yeah. I, I wouldn't feel so sick about, I mean, I, I would feel sick about that journal entry no matter what, but the, the the fact that the thing that really makes it you feel queasy about it is, is that it's presented as a beautiful thing, actually, that you could give your body to be a gestating pod or that you could give your body for somebody to eat. And many of these most recent spate of kind of indie cannibal dramas have been that the idea yeah. that I love somebody so much that I I want to have them be part of me or or that they yeah I want myself to be part of them. Mm-hmm. And that's just really old school paganism. You, I mean, you read about the Mayans and stuff like that. It's like they're not just abusing their enemies. They have a certain respect for their enemies. They want to consume their best qualities. They want to make their yeah. what their energy part of their energy. It's like this is just always what people have done. It's really dark stuff. It's really demonic stuff. But it's... It's not new. We didn't just come up with a new form of evil. There's nothing new under the sun. Mm-hmm. So I didn't know we were going to talk about this today. Anything else you guys want to say about cannibalism? <laughs> nope. Oh, man. No. But going along with it, speaking of the demonic, the next thing in our feed is an article. It's actually a good article. Mm-hmm. It's a Rod Dreher article in the American Conservative mm-hmm. that was sent to me. So I posted it, but it was sent to me outside of Discord. It's called Temptation of the Psychonauts, and it's worth reading yep. because you have to know, if you don't know that this is true, it was actually sent to me by a pastor who's dealing with this sort of thing in his church. Magic mushrooms, DMT, psilocybin, ayahuasca, this is the new frontier of, of, of what we will be dealing with in our churches, these sort of trips that people go on, the use of psychedelic drugs to get some kind of mystical or transcendent experience it is exploding. And if you don't pay attention, Joe Rogan has been promoting this sort of thing. We're having people on his show, at least, that promote it. Definitely, even in, in very conservative quarters, people have promoted this off and on. Scott Adams talks about the use of psychedelics. There was a time when Cernovich was promoting... Mike Cernovich was promoting ayahuasca. He doesn't anymore since he's converted to orthodoxy and sees it as demonic. But there was a time. It's just very trendy and hip. And there's also a new frontier of uh, medicine exploring 
or coming back around to the psychedelic experiments of the 60s and the CIA stuff. But see, trying to find, you know, can we microdose this stuff? Can we use it to heal certain psychological or psychiatric disorders? Can we help people overcome PTSD? Can we, can we deal with stress-related? Can, you know, can we heal people using this stuff? Can, can someone take one dose and then be done with trauma? Can they just reframe their brain? Can they be done with addiction? With, can they be done with cigarettes? Can they, is, is there a way to... And there, and there are many people out there that anecdotally claim this is exactly what happened to them or for them. And, and, and part of why the, this pastor sent me this article is he was, he was telling me about how there's somebody in his church that he knows one person who went down this road and ended up killing himself. And he knows another person in his church who claims this was the most helpful, beneficial experience of his life. I hope I'm getting that right. Maybe not. Maybe that's a bit of an overstatement on my part or an exaggeration. But that's kind of how I remember the conversation going. So, but, but we're going to get anyhow. that. That's the gist of what we're going to get. Yep. And mm-hmm. the, and I would say the people aren't going to be wrong. There are going to be people who say I used it for such and such an end, and I achieved such and such an end, and. I think the worst thing you could do, or not, maybe not the worst thing you could do, but one of the bad things you could do is say, well, no, actually it didn't work. Because of course these things work. And, and so part of, the, part of the deal here is you can go and find, you can find academic papers, you can find things from Johns Hopkins, from all kinds of places that talk about, I'll read a bit from this article right here. So Dreyer is, is going to link to an article from the New Republic and then he says, as DMT enthusiasts who view their use of the drug not as recreational, his recent story about DMT enthusiasts who view their use of the drug not as recreational, but as exploratory, they do believe that the drug unlocks the door to a different dimension of reality that is not to a hallucinatory realm of the imagination, and they want to explore it. Here's an excerpt. So this is him quoting New Republic. Thorbon is one of the first in a class of so-called psychonauts exploring new frontiers in hallucinogenic research preparing to use a technology called extended state DMT. When the drug is smoked, a trip lasts minutes, despite feeling much longer, but with a constant stream of DMT supplied to user and blood serum levels of the molecule regulated, that trip can last hours or even days, seemingly an eternity. The method might give Thorbon and other psychonauts enough time to bring back detailed trip reports of their experience. An intriguing aspect of DMT experiences is a degree of similarity. The landscapes and beings can be recognizable to different users. The mechanical elf is a popular recurring visitor. And for Thorban, the trip seemed more real than real, quote-unquote, a quote heard often in DMT experimenting circles. Advocates of extended state programs want to know whether these experiences illuminate a new corner of the mind, even another dimension, or whether users are just re- getting really high. So here, here's one of the things that you'll find. You can find these sort of like double-blind experiments, experiments done at Johns Hopkins, just gathered research, where people are experiencing entities in these trips that are, it doesn't matter, they can be across cultures, they can be on different continents, they can be from different decades, but they experience the same kind of entities who say the same kinds of things and present mm-hmm. themselves in the same way and have the same appearance. They can draw these pictures and it's not unlike the 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 gray men alien type right or mm-hmm. the sleep paralysis men that come into your room that right there's all kinds of stuff like that yeah and so oh these are beings the idea that these are 
these are we're, we're tapping into inner another dimension and, and encountering interdimensional beings, mechanical elves or aliens, interdimensional aliens. That sort of thing is how these people think of this sort of thing or the questions that they're trying to ask. And it's just straight up demonic. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Anyhow, Dreher does a good job of just kind of explaining this whole world and opening you up to understand it is even in this article, a little video of Graham Hancock, mm. <laughs> our boy. Yep. Talking about this sort of thing. But yeah. I just think it's one of those things where it's like, sure. Yeah. I, I think it probably does work, but the secret things belong to the Lord. He has not ordained that we're to look into that stuff. So I don't feel any great need to push back and say, well, it's probably just imagination. It's <laughs> probably just X, Y, or Z, the ways that people might diminish it all down to to just being a chemical reaction. No, no. And if you talk with Christians in African cult, like on the Christian frontier where you still have voodoo and witch doctors and stuff, you you hear stuff about interactions with entities and I can well, think of what, a missionary what, who just... If you're going to do an ayahuasca trip, the way to do it is to have a witch doctor who is guiding you on a spiritual journey and he sees mm-hmm. you as interacting with gods. And right. Yeah. Yeah. I'm reminded of, it's probably an orthodoxy. It sounds like it's an orthodoxy. G.K. Chesterton talking about how people are so mad that they can't fornicate, that they can't have homosexual sex, That, but he is so happy that he gets to be married to one woman. That's enough glory and mystery and joy and for him. Well, he has a whole bit about the romance of choice. Right. right. Mm-hmm. The, the romance right. of limitation, the romance of having yeah. made a commitment, made a decision, and then this is the one woman right. that I will know and nobody else gets to know her. Yeah, and the and the reality of life is you will know more about the secrets of pleasure by giving yourself to one woman than you will by exploring the great frontiers of the Kama Sutra or whatever the new Kama Sutra is. Mm-hmm. And I, I think that's analogous to this. We live in a world of gods and monsters. We live in a world of heaven and hell. We live in a world of angels and dem- demons. We live in a world of good and evil. We live in a world full of the supernatural. It's all around us. We interact with it every day. We just think of it as everyday stuff because we're boring, because we're dissatisfied. Yeah. I mean, every time you pray, you are talking to the almighty God. That's crazy. But you just have lost the romance of it, if you want to call it that. And so if you if you want to go on a trip, man, read your Bible, read the Psalms. That that that's where you will find what your soul is looking for when it looks when it wants something that's greater than you when it wants something that's supernatural. That's what that's who God is, mm-hmm. and what you will actually find when you give yourself to be, being a cosmonaut, you know, exploring the frontiers of of the supernatural is that it will elude you. Actually, well, and it will enslave. It you. will elude, and then it will yeah. The thing that you want will elude you, and the thing that you don't want will enslave you. Yeah, I think it's important to remember, too, just the, that Jesus is over the spiritual world. And it is actually a big point in the New Testament that we don't often pay attention to, because the demonic is, at least in my childhood, it's mostly out of our purview. or mm-hmm. what, not That's not the right word. But anyway, out of our experience. And so 
we, we, we just don't, it doesn't hit us as viscerally like, wait a minute, Jesus just says no to the unclean spirits and they like go into the pigs and drown. He's mm-hmm. like, no, you're going over there. And then he, and, and we're in Jesus. We don't need some other spiritual power or access. We have access to, like you said, the Almighty right. through Jesus. We don't need something else. Well, that's another problem, though, is people will use that kind of language to say, well, of course I can go exploring because I have Jesus. So I'm safe and protected. I'm safe and protected. And uh, and I need to escape from this material world and face the reality that we live in a in a spiritual world. And so I'm just going to go and engage with the spiritual world and spiritual realities so that I come back stronger and better equipped and have a better understanding of these things. That kind of thing can be really, really tempted. These are the kinds of arguments we're going to get as these people come into our churches. Well, and you have to understand, and this is one of the things that people have been been sort of groomed into giving themselves permission to fully engage the lust of the eyes, unhealthy curiosity about any number of things. And social media does that. It gives you windows into things that you were never meant to see constantly. And so you're constantly... When you're on Facebook and reading about what somebody had for lunch or whatever, who lives in a different state, you're you're engaging a part of your your soul in in this consumption of things that are just not a part of the ordinary knowledge you ought to have as you go about the world as God made it, mm-hmm. as you go about your life in the world as God made and designed things to work. And so you have this sort of like unhealthy curiosity for forbidden things that's being fed on all sides in all corners and pornography feeds into that. A lot of our movies and shows feed into that mm-hmm. where you you see gruesome things that body horror is that kind of thing. It all feeds into this idea that, that there's nothing off limits. There no, there's no such thing as a modesty veil. There's no place where you draw a line. There's no, there's not, there's no knowledge that's forbidden, and so then you, you'll have people with this really unhealthy curiosity about all kinds of things, a desire to experience and and to know these sorts of things, and they'll tell themselves the lies that, well, I've, I'm in, I have the Holy Spirit, I'm in Christ, so I can go into this sort of thing, and it's safe for me, and they'll come out harmed. Yeah, you're just making me think of a movie I had on recently that had nudity in it. I didn't know what was going to happen, and then it happened. And this was the first time where I was like, I wasn't supposed to see this. This woman revealed something private about herself to the audience that was watching the movie, which which feels like such an obvious point to make. But it was like after you've been married and you've actually had the experience of that, it's a little bit different. You even you watch a sitcom, and there's two people laying in bed yeah. talking and they're yeah. both in their pajamas, and there's nothing particularly immodest about it. But, but it's you, immodest. Except that that's just what happens in people's bedrooms. And you're not really supposed to know about that until you have your own bedroom. Am I telling you never to watch? No, no, no. But it's just you have to realize we live in a world that violates and has since the invention of cinema at the very least violated so many basic taboos. Boys follow girls into the locker room, into the restroom, into like just basic things yeah. that you wouldn't know what that looks like, what that feels like, you know, and you're just used to it. And, and you kind of think you're owed it in some weird way. Like you, you think that you should know everything about everything that goes on with everybody. Um, and that's just the world that we live in. And you have to 
place yourself in that world, realize how strange it is, what a historical anomaly it is. Even the fact that I can turn on a movie and watch and see, oh, that's what India looks like. That's how people live in India. It's like that. Well, you I, get that experience without ever having to pay for it. And there's something wonderful about certain aspects of that. You get to watch a beautiful nature documentary and see things about the way God made the world that you would never have been able to see. You get to see things about India. But then there's there's this whole aspect too of you, you we're so rich and so overwhelmed with riches that we never have to pay for. Mm-hmm. And it feeds into this in- mentality that we're just entitled to whatever right. we want. It doesn't matter. We're just entitled to it. If I want to see India, I should be able to see India mm-hmm. at the drop of a hat, pull out my phone. If I want to know what a celebrity sex life is like or what goes on behind the closed doors of politicians or... I should know. I should know. If I want to know, if I'm if I'm a single, inexperienced young man, I should know things about the female anatomy because I just, I should. Mm-hmm. And there's so much that you do know that you weren't meant to know. Without having ever earned it, without having ever worked for it, without having ever paid for it. But, and some of that is the difference, right, between images and text. Not all of it, but part of what we're talking about is the way that images deliver things to you for free yeah. and imprint you and damage you without any possibility of consideration or buffer or processing. Whereas for for some of these things, there's a responsible way to do that. Well, it's pretty fun reading Anna Karenina, which we're doing for the booking right now. And it's got this scene where Anna and Vronsky, the adulterers, consummate their affair. And then it's got a little scene between a married couple later on where they're newly married and he comes in and gets distracted from his work. And then they're like doing something on the couch and the maid walks in or something like that. And and it's amazing how Tolstoy is able to deliver both of those scenes, give you the feeling of them the feeling of self-loathing and disgust in the one and the feeling of kind of happy erotic joy in the other and give you nothing also give you, give you no salacious details. Give you just enough that you, you use your imagination and you can only fill it in. You you only supply it with what you know. Right. Right. And so if you don't know, then you don't know. It's quite possible that I read Anna Karenina for the first time as a young man without being married and did not actually know what happened between the married couple. And this time I knew exactly what happened, even though he doesn't ever even tell you he, anything. He basically just says the maid walked in and they were embarrassed or something like that's the sentence. Mm-hmm. And you know exactly what was going what was on. going on. And you picture your own version of what was going on. And it's amazing how the printed word. Can and do, if you can, don't, if you don't know, it sells right over your head. Sails right over your head. And I could see the, the uh, a really young person reading <laughs> The Anna and Vronska scene, and actually not getting the not plot point that they've slept together. That, act, that this is the moment <laughs> they slept together. It's that veiled, mm-hmm. and it's not it because Tolstoy's it. being a prude or anything. Like he's just he's just using the written word really effectively because he's one of the greatest users of it ever to do exactly what he wants to do and to pull exactly as much it's of the curtain. So as easy to supply everything that you need. Yeah, and that's something that's. Very hard with images. It's very hard to make a movie about adultery that doesn't draw you into the adultery in a bad way. It's not impossible, but it's much harder than it is actually with a book because just seeing somebody kiss or or whatever it is, seeing somebody hold hands even has a trigger response 
Seeing the look. Seeing a look, yeah. Mm-hmm. Seeing a woman look attractive and desirable in the wrong way. It's like the men in the audience are, they can't just respond to the character. They're responding to the actress. They're responding to the way she looks. And that's something that a, a movie by by its design must do. And a book doesn't have to. So, so don't watch movies. Don't watch movies. That's the thing. And I definitely uh, don't listen to our movie podcast. Yep. And if you ever are watching a sitcom where two people are talking in bed in their pajamas, like Let Lucy and Desi or uh, Mork and Mindy, Mork and Mindy, or something like that. Yeah. <laughs> what? <laughs> Mork and Mindy. <laughs> We're a married couple. Were they? <laughs> okay. I have no idea. I'm that just... would be naughty. <laughs> okay. Um, wow. <laughs> If you're watching The Thin Man. I don't Man, remember what Morgan Vitti is about, except an alien played uh, by Robin Williams. Turn it off, burn it all, psychonauts, don't heed the call. I don't know. If anybody in Evansville wants to see a demon, uh, Amy Grant is playing in town this March. Wow. <laughs> <laughs> Patreon.com forward slash Sound of Sanity. Until next time. Whoa, we're going to skip all the rest of these? Stay sane. (laughs) 